and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What's going on? I don't understand, but some people in the world do. One of those people is our guest today. We'll introduce in a second. First, we have two other panelists besides me, Justin Dorfman. Hey, everyone. And Alan Gunner. Hello. I guess just Gunn, but Gunner is his name. So whatever. I don't know why I said Alan. I apologize. But our guest... configurable. <laughs> like that. Our guest today has been really essential to the Node ecosystem over the years. Currently, he's working at Protocol Labs out of Alameda, California, where he lives remotely, like everyone else in the world who does code. Michael Rogers, how are you doing today? Great, man. Great. Yeah. I mean, the world around me seems to be sort of crumbling, but uh, inside of my house, it's really nice. <laughs> really pleasant here. Um, Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. So you work at Protocol Labs. You work as for IPLD, right? What's your exact... Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a company this size, a lot of people work on a lot of things. I would yep. say that what I tend to work on is I lead a team that's yep. doing persistent data structure work. Obviously, always in the context of decentralization at Protocol Labs, but we're basically working on how to persist data and build data structures on a decentralized internet. And what that means is not just how do I write an application that works decentralized, but also how do we build the data layer of that application so that other applications can then leverage that data and build on top of it and link to it so that you have the kinds of network effects that you have on the web now where websites can link to each other. And we're talking about the value of the web as a whole and as a network rather than as an individual site. And so if you think about Facebook, Twitter, like any app that you've ever used, if you were able to sort of move that data into a model that did not have to live behind Facebook or Twitter or whatever, you would have a, a whole ecosystem of applications sort of building on top of that. And that's what we're building towards. And my team is working on the primitive layer of that. So part of that is IPLD, which is interplanetary linked data. It's basically a data model for how to think about data in different formats that is being hashed and linked to each other in the sort of broader view of a decentralized internet. And then we also work on multi-formats, which are these really nice little protocols for self-describing different types of data, like hash links to different types of formats, like hashes that tell you what kind of hash that they are, all that kind of stuff. We, we work on all the sort of persistent data stuff. Okay, so that's a total ton of information and Protocol Labs <laughs> is really interesting and cool. I really don't know how to host this because I set up the GitHub <laughs> organizations for like IPLD and the GitHub <laughs> multi-format. So I just feel really weird. It's too close Thank to you. the topic. <laughs> uh, you're welcome, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm interested in, I guess, is... So for those of our listeners who don't know, can you say mm -hmm. a bit about who Protocol Labs is and where they come from? Sure, sure. I think, you know, if people have heard about it, it's probably in the context of IPFS or Filecoin. So IPFS is a decentralized file system that was sort of developed in the early engineering and also the vision behind it was all Juan Binet. And he started this company around at Protocol Labs. And then Filecoin is the next stage of funding and really like a model for funding protocol development broadly, where we build this blockchain and this whole incentive network where we can just build the protocol, just get the network up, and then we share in the wealth of the network. And, and that continues to fund the protocol development and fund the company at large. So that's some of the vision behind the company. Where sort of my background and Juan's background really intersect is that we're both working on a lot of peer-to-peer -peer stuff. And I came to some of these primitives like content addressing quite a while ago. Juan figured out something that I didn't figure out and that nobody else who was beside me working on peer stuff figured out. And this is 
key to Protocol Labs' vision of a decentralized internet and what kind of sets it apart from what other people are doing in a decentralized web. And this is just the idea that if you do the math on a hash of a sufficient size, you realize that you are not going to generate a conflict. Like if you see a conflict, that means that somebody's broken the algorithm. It does not mean that two people encoded data and got the same hash. Um, so that's what that means if you really kind of sit down and do the math. I've done the math before and it's SHA-256 is about eight quintillions. That's one in eight quintillion. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we're not going to generate that much data before the algorithm gets broken, <laughs> right? No. All of these algorithms have a life cycle before they're broken. So if you're thinking on those terms, the way that we think about hashes and addresses and the way that I was thinking about it and everybody working on peer-to-peer was thinking about it before one, it was, oh, I have a hash address. So I hash some data and then I send you that hash around and that's how we identify the information so that in a peer-to-peer network, we don't have to trust each other. We can, I can send you that data and validate that it's the hash and then I know that you gave me the right data. But what Juan realizes that this is not like an identifier in a namespace. When you go to GitHub, you can look up a commit by the hash. But you have to tell it what repo that's in. You can't just say like, hey, all of GitHub, give me this hash. And you can't say, hey, all of the internet, where is this Git hash? But there's no reason that you couldn't. You're not going to see it. Well, you might on GitHub because they use SHA-1 and it's broken. But outside of Git and GitHub, we're looking at SHA-2256, for instance. We can start to think of hashes and hash-based addresses as global, as something closer to an URL, but in a decentralized URL where you're not saying this is where something is, but just, hey, anywhere on the internet, whatever peer-to-peer resolution architecture that I have or local offline cache, wherever I'm trying to get this data, like here is this identifier. And it really is globally unique. And from that point of view, you start to build things in a very different way. You start to think about what is it like when completely different people in an open source ecosystem are building applications on top of each other's data without coordination. What's happening when you have a network of data that's moving around where there is no silos, there is no namespaces. It's just we're all working on top of data structures with these unified addresses. It's a really powerful concept once you wrap your head around it. And it has really big ramifications about how you build up these layers of software. And you can see that throughout the stack. And you definitely see it in IPLD, (laughs) where we we literally work on the hash addresses. Not everyone can see it as they build up around the stack, because not everyone Mm -hmm. can. So it's really interesting listening to you talk is that you're Mm -hmm. incredibly eloquent about really abstract things that are difficult for people to normally grok. And so one of the things about you is that you've been in this field for a long time, right? You started out at Mozilla in the 2000s. And then after that, you sort of did a lot of stuff with Node. Is that about about right? Well, no, I mean, like I had been a software developer for, I mean, I've been writing code for longer than 10 years at that point, but I've been like in the industry for about eight years before I was even at Mozilla. Um, Cool, okay. No, sorry. No, no, yeah, about eight years, yeah. But you're still a developer. You haven't moved yeah. on to upper C-suite level. I did. It turns out that those jobs are terrible. Like, I don't know if you've ever, <laughs> if you've ever gotten one of those jobs, but it's really no fun. For people that don't know, I, I did a lot of early note stuff and contributed to core wrote requests for a lot of the early libraries. I, and then I really focused on a lot of the community stuff too. So I created NodeConf and did the early conferencing scene and did a lot of the early speaking and community building. And you know, if you would ask me back then what my dream job would be, it'd be like, oh, I'd love to run like a Node.js foundation, but you know, Joyant owns Node, so there's never going to be a Node foundation. And so I literally like, you know, worked on forking Node and made a foundation happen and, and it ran that foundation. And, you know, once I had that job and was running the Node foundation and doing the kind of day-to-day work of what it means to just administer an organization like that, you realize that this is not more fun than programming. And in fact, it's considerably less fun than programming. <laughs> and programming is like what actually brought me to this work. I think like when you enter the tech industry, 
you tend to do it because you have something of a natural passion towards some aspect of the work. But the whole industry is really pushing you towards do more, take on more responsibility, do a startup, take on executive roles, keep going. (laughs) It's just never enough to just write code or be a programmer. Yeah. So I had a real kind of crisis, like identity crisis a little bit, like when I was leaving the Node Foundation, because it's like, what am I going to do? And it actually took me a little while. Like I had a a short stint in in some venture capital stuff before I, I made it to Protocol Labs. And then once I was at Protocol Labs, I realized that I found myself programming again, even though I didn't need to be programming. And at some point you realize like, oh, I keep finding myself doing this again because this is actually the enjoyable thing for me. Like, what would it look like if I just spent my life developing and becoming a better developer? What would it look like to structure your life like that? And there's surprisingly little documentation about that. (laughs) You know, like the industry is not really set up to support you working on this as like a lifetime craft. And so I, I really ended up having to look towards other fields and other crafts and a lot of like actually Japanese cultural stuff in order to think about what are the kinds of practices and what is like the mindset that you have to put yourself in to just like, this is my practice. This is what I'm going to get good at and better at every day forever. And yeah, so that's kind of what I've been doing for the last few years. So you're saying there's not a lot of resources out there for people who want to sustain their coding careers, which is really (laughs) relevant to this podcast because we haven't really talked about that sort of aspect in a while. You mentioned looking at Japanese Mm -hmm. structures There's also Western structures. I mean, I know a lot of people who continue to, in an academic sense, keep coding and developing. What separates your path and your ideal goal from, say, being someone who ends up just working on algorithms full time for like Microsoft in the back office? These are really different things. You know, academia has its own set of constraints and incentives that sort of dilute what you would think of as sort of like the pure science or the pure, you know, knowledge that you're trying to seek in computer science. But even if you sort of take all that away and you just go like, what would be the difference between like computer science research and what I'm talking about? It would really be that I am talking about the practice of executing, like the actually doing of it, not the thinking of what is possible. So what you're doing when you're just sort of designing new fundamental algorithms is that you're really trying to expand what is possible. And you're trying to explore the space of like things that have not been done yet. And that's really important. And like, I read their papers and they like influence my practice. But how is that not what you're doing at Protocol Labs <laughs> you know, with hashes? So there are people that are just doing research at Protocol Labs. So like, don't get me okay, wrong. Okay. I, I'm just not one of those people. Nadia's book uh, was, was yeah, written yeah. at Protocol Labs. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Nadia was a coworker of mine. Nadia and I had a podcast for a few years on, on this topic of, of, of sustainability. So we do have research going on. It's just sort of what separates that from what I'm talking about is once you have an idea for something, like anybody can have an idea for a beautiful picture and very few people can paint it. The actual painting of it is how good you are at your practice, how good you are at sort of taking what is in your head and actually expressing it. And programming is really the same way. Like you continue to evolve your ability to to conceptualize the solution to something and then to express it. And the expression is never quite as clean as your conception of it. Like you're always striving to be as good as you are in your head before you really sit down and finish it. And because technology is this moving target where everything is changing all the time, it's not like this is a field or a craft that you just, you reach a certain level of skill and then you're done. Like the layer below you and on top of you is always changing. And your sort of understanding of the world has to be able to change along with it. And you run into people in the tech industry who just do not want to change their view of how something is supposed to work or what it is. And it's always just baffled me 
It's like, you really just picked the wrong industry to have a fixed view in. This is not an industry where you can just like do the same thing for 10 years without evolving or considering the changes that are happening around you. But at the same time, I, I don't think that we really talk about it as a craft. The way that we think about engineering tends to be, oh, you have these processes and it's scrum or it's test-driven development or it's all these ways of approaching the problem that are really like just suited to different types of people and different types of problems. It's not really about your skill as an individual and developing your skill as an individual for what you can express with your tools. That's really not what we focus on. And even trying to get the right kind of philosophy and frame of mind to figure out what a practice should look like around that, I really couldn't find anything. And just think about like how many people in the tech industry are very notable and very successful that still write code. There are many people that have been phenomenal, amazing programmers. Bill Gates was a phenomenal programmer, really good. And it's like sad to me that he'd stopped doing that at some point in time. I mean, WAS, like some of the stories of early WAS are like, I don't know a parallel. Like nothing has been done like that before or since. But like really like, you know, there's like John Carmack and Ward Cunningham are like maybe the two people that I can think of where like they still write code. They still write a lot of code and they're still like getting better at it. And I think Andy Hertzfeld, who preceded me at the Open Source Applications Foundation, also was a model for this as well. Like he, he really viewed himself like as just a programmer for his entire career. And I don't know what he's up to now, but I suspect that it is writing code. Well, it was for a while where your identity was an open source community guy. And I was, it got me confused. I was like, didn't he like fork IOJS? Like, <laughs> how does this, wait, how does this work? So... That was a bit of a community act though. I mean, that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if I didn't have everyone on board with that, like I actually like Fedor actually hit the button. Like he actually did the fork and that was actually important because he was the, a singular person where if you didn't have him on board, it probably wasn't going to happen. I think the key not there was- Not everyone point. knows what the fork was. Could you- Oh, sorry, sorry. Brief example. This was the IOJS fork. So we forked Node.js and established- all of the current governance and releasing practices. So there was not a major release for multiple years. It had really grinded a lot of people out. The project itself was really in jeopardy. And so the contributors, the people that had been propping it up at that time and before that and kind of burned out, we all got together along with a lot of the companies that were also concerned about this. And at first tried to work with Joyant on like, can we run this because you are bad at it? And can the people that are doing the work have some agency over how it's done. And they didn't want to do that. And they dragged their feet for a while. And, and finally, it came to a head and, and the fork happened. And it was successful primarily because everybody who was doing day-to-day code on it that didn't work at Joyant was on the fork. And then we very quickly gained a lot of success in community building, in contribution building, like all the things that Node had been really failing at in terms of getting contributors into core we were succeeding at it at a rate that was higher than anyone could have expected. And it kind of blew away a lot of their arguments for why something like we were talking about wouldn't work. Like, I think one of the posts that I did was we built a, a localization community of like over, I think, 100, 200 people in about 48 hours. It was Whoa, like, it was wow. that fast. Yeah, yeah. It was just one of these things where Node had grown so quickly, but the environment around core had made it so unattractive to work on it. Really, like none of that was converting. None of this community growth was converting into sustainability into the actual project. And so once we just 
said, hey, we want to do that. We want to do that. We want to support you in that. We're working on processes and governance that really brings everybody together. A lot of people showed up to pitch in, like way more than anybody expected, including me. And I was quite optimistic about it. Was there a lot of tension in between communities? You know, when, when something like this doesn't happen overnight, tension had been building in the core project for a number of years. And during that time, a lot of individual people are going to end up having conflicts with each other. One of the reasons why I ended up playing the role that I did in the fork was because I had stopped contributing to core before that tension started to happen. So everyone that was sort of mad at each other was still like, okay with me. (laughs) I avoided all of that sort of like negative period. And what happened was I was coming back into the Node community after I had done a startup pretty involved in the community, but then I took a role as a CTO of a startup and really didn't have the time to engage with the community much. And I didn't like that and ended up leaving that for a role doing developer relations to DigitalOcean specifically so that I could go back into the community. And when I started working with the community again, I started to hear, oh, there's going to be a fork of node. There's going to be a fork of node. This is like a year before IOJS. And I start to dig into it and I'm like, well, I think I know who would be doing that. Like I should maybe make some calls. And I find out that there's not going to be a fork. There's going to be like three forks. Everybody is mad, but they're also mad at each other. And so they're not talking and there's a lot of tension. And I pulled everybody together. And, and after one of the node comps, we had a kind of private meeting of everybody. And it was really interesting because a lot of people in that room were, were quite literally like in litigation with each other. And they all seemed to get on the same side pretty quickly in that we all need to be responsible for this and we all have an issue actually just with joint. (laughs) And that was really good to see that like everybody could actually get past that for the sake of the project. And then joint had all the power and then we had all of the tension until the fork. So we were all really upset and it was really starting to show and starting to bleed out into the public. And they were just kind of sitting back going, well, we don't have any problem. It's your problem. And then When we forked, it's like that totally flipped. All the contributors all of a sudden were really happy and got along with each other because they all had somewhere to put their effort and they weren't being blocked by anyone else. And they all felt like they had ownership and agency and like a process that we could iterate on. And so everyone just felt, oh my God, I can finally just do the things that I want to do. This is great. And then Joanne actually was very upset that we had forked their project and we were saying that, you know, there was any reason to. And so... Yeah, it was a really interesting dynamic where they all of a sudden were starting to say things in public that they shouldn't and things like that. And we were able to take a stand where we had a, like a no negativity kind of policy during that time. It's like, we're not going to talk bad about Node. Like we actually love Node and we all came to Node. It's just that, and we don't even have a technical disagreement with Joint. It's really just about how we run the project. And, and we're just going to talk about how great we're doing. We're not going to talk about anything negative that they're doing. And that worked really well. I mean, like we, we won that split pretty quickly. They capitulated to have a foundation pretty quickly. It took a while for some parts to move around that would allow us to come into the foundation. And that eventually happened. And then, you know, our governance model became the governance model of the foundation and of the project. So we effectively took over the project. The Linux Foundation asked me to come on to run the foundation. It was pretty clear, like what had happened and, and, and how things ended out pretty quickly. So this kind of segues into another topic that I know you wanted to talk about, which you started by talking about how much it's important to be a developer and stay a developer. And if you want to be a developer, just develop. And like, how do we do that? And how do we grow? But now you're talking about nurturing other people, which Mm -hmm. seems to me like a project manager role. It's not really a developer role. Are those similar? How do you reconcile those? 
So doing open source community work is really good training to be like a, an engineering manager in that you can't tell anyone what to do. <laughs> That's the brilliance about it, right? Is that everyone is there doing what they want because they want to. And if you want to try to convince them to move in any particular direction, you literally have to convince them. Like you have to sit down and actually like, in, in a very sort of human person to person way, <laughs> go like, hey, let's find alignment on this and like find agreement here. And, and often with asynchronous faceless communication and with a bunch of other people jumping in. So it's, it's a very challenging environment, but it does train you really well, I think, for nurturing and encouraging developers, especially in a really collaborative kind of consensus building environment, which is how things are in my team in Protocol Labs. Yeah. And then as I entered in this phase of my life where I got a bit less focused on the community side of things and more just focused on my own development practice, I started to find that the more that I thought about my practice and how I approach things, the more beneficial it was actually to take myself out of it for a minute and think about how somebody else is approaching this. And when I'm working with people that report to me, a lot of what I do is listen and try to think about what their practice is like and what their process is like and how it's very different from mine. And then I can often help them along by offering them a different perspective or in in just like taking their perspective for a minute and kind of guiding them along if they need it. And that dramatically enriches my own practice. You're able to sort of pick up a different view and, and for a moment even sort of exist in a different reality a little bit where you're thinking about the problem from a very different perspective. And that allows you to just be a much better developer and to develop a practice that contains a lot more multitudes than I think a lot of uh, the approach that engineers tend to take, where they believe that there's just this one right way of doing things and you're working towards some kind of engineering singularity. And I, I just really don't feel that way about programming. Like It's a very creative endeavor and the different approaches that you take are often just indicative of your approach to problem solving and how you think in a creative space. A lot of what you're sharing, uh, practice is a repeated <laughs> word, mind exercises and training. I know you may be a practicing Buddhist or you're interested in Buddhism. It seems very relevant to how you're describing your creative process at the moment. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I am a practicing Buddhist, but, and that's probably why I use that term so often. But I mean, look, if you write code every day, you have a practice. Even yep. if you're just doing it for work, like you have a practice, like you sit down and you go, like, and you probably notice yourself like, taking a walk or working on a problem in the shower or something. These are like, you know, really subtle forms of meditation for you to like take yourself in a different state and get all of the distractions away for a minute and just think about a problem. I think that if you think about it as a practice, then you start to develop different approaches and you get better at a faster rate. Your rate of improvement is much quicker if you're thinking about what you do not as a job and not as like just a I have an end goal. I'm just trying to get there as quickly as possible. If you're thinking about it as like, I'm going to solve this problem, but in the process of solving the problem, I'm going to invest in myself a bit here and invest in just becoming a better developer. And that often leads to much better outcomes. You know, there are people that work for me who also approach it as a practice and even use the term practice and they're not Buddhists. So it is not like a Buddhism thing, but yeah, I can see the, the kind of parallel there. And also a parallel in that what makes you a Buddhist is the practice. It's not like a faith-based religion in the way that Christianity yep. is, where like you, you believe in it and then you're that. That's really not the point. <laughs> yep. The point is the doing of it. And I think being a developer is the same thing. If you're not doing it, you, you aren't. <laughs> um, you can't just believe in software and, and be a developer. Yeah, no, I agree. I also meditate at hmm. local Buddhist temple. 
So not right now oh, cool. during COVID, but doing it remotely. And it's just very interesting to me because we're sort of touching a lot of different topics here. And all of them are sort of tangential to sustainability, but also right at its core. What you're talking about is how do we help individual developers figure out how to stay in their art and enjoy it and figure that out, which <laughs> yeah. is sustainability, right? How do you yeah. sustain your career? How do you sustain code? One of the things I know that you specialize in or have worked a lot and thought a lot on during your practice of being a person who codes is how to design libraries so that they can grow entire ecosystems and communities and how, how to make the code itself actually enable and afford better sustainable practices. Can you talk a bit about that? This is something that I probably, wow, I, now that I think about it, it, it goes back a ways. One of the reasons why I was attracted to Node in the first place. So I started working with Node the week that it was released. Ryan released it at a friend of mine's conference. So I found out about it really early. And I was really interested in the opportunity to build a community from scratch and to build an ecosystem from scratch and how those things interrelate. Because at the time I was writing Python and what I found was that, okay, the problems that I'm having right now in Python are not being fixed. And they're not being fixed because nobody is smart enough to fix them. It's literally that culture around the core technology doesn't value the things that I care about. And it turns out actually the majority of people using Python at the time cared about. And there was a period of decline in Python and Ruby over these issues where they're just like terrible at concurrency. And that was what people were trying to do with them. And Python has had a huge resurgence because AI and ML happened and they had already put more than a decade of community building into academia. And so they were really well suited for that. But that aside, I didn't really see a way long-term to solve the issues that I had because the people in the culture around Python core had been built and established during a different period of time. And that drove the values around it. And so if I wanted to have different values, if I wanted a bit like what I was thinking at the time, I love the Django community. They're like the nicest people in the world. And they really thought about a lot of these community dynamics. And I was like thinking, what if we had a whole platform and a whole ecosystem that was like that? And what if we didn't have a terrible package manager, but like a really good one with an ecosystem around it? And luckily, I didn't have to build that. Isaac built that. And I just had to build the registry. And a lot of like when you think about how you depend on a library and the concerns that different actors have to have when they build and publish libraries and then when people put them together. And these people need to be able to collaborate without coordination. That's like an old Clay Shirky thing. But this notion of if you can have collaboration without coordination, if you can get rid of all of the friction between two things working together so that the two people that built them and the third party integrating them do not need to talk to each other or directly interact. That's how you get network effects, right? That's how network effects happen. You just have this really quick and fast interlinking. And if you look at the Node.js ecosystem, that's what happened. In fact, all the things that people complain about in Node are a result of this success. We made it so easy to rely on other people's code that people rely on too much of other people's code. They literally have debt trees that are like in the thousands of packages. And many of them are duplicated because it is easier to duplicate the code so that you have two different versions going to two different dependencies than to try and ask the integrator to resolve this dependency conflict. That's the difference between those package management and Pythons. Or when you import a package by name in Python, it's global for the whole VM. And in Node, it's localized to where that package is. And these are all like very intentional design considerations. And then you sort of map onto that a lot of this Unix philosophy about small things that do one thing and kind of wiring them together. If you look at a lot of the early talks that I gave across the Node.js ecosystem, it was really about this. 
this is how we build an ecosystem of Lego blocks that fit together and how to grow this ecosystem. And now, like, you know, being able to look back and go like, okay, well, some of the problems that we have in the ecosystem wouldn't be so bad if we had done this. And some of these problems would be so bad if we did that. And I've spent a lot of my time over the last few years recognizing how many things we did in Node that were covering up a deficiency of the language where JavaScript was just not in the place where we needed it to be. And we thought that we were building a platform on top of that. And what we were actually doing was covering up some of those problems and building the platform on top. So like the buffer interface is like a really good example of this. Like I'm removing it from everything for you and Taterays and it's like the most painful migration. We've been doing it like across our whole stack and it's so rough. I was literally in the room when we created the buffer interface. And at the time, there just wasn't a binary interface in, in JavaScript. What we were doing before that was binary encoding everything to strings. And it was breaking multi-byte characters when you would assemble them back together. And so this was like a huge problem and, and we had no good solution. And people in standards were still fighting about which of these different conflicting binary standards would win. And so if you look at streams, it's like, okay, we don't have async generators. If you look at the callback pattern, we don't have async functions. Like all these things have been filled in by the platform. And if we had just known, even if we didn't have these things yet, but if we knew that they would come someday, if we knew that what we were doing was covering up a deficiency in the platform, we would have designed things a little bit differently so that they would be easier to rip out of the ecosystem once they evolved. And potentially we would have tried to align them a little bit more with where standards were going earlier, but we just weren't capable of that at the time. And Ryan is doing Dino now. And I think that he has also really learned this lesson. Like at first I overreacted to a couple of things in it that I saw because he, he has a new interface called Buffer. And I was like, you're doing this again. What are you doing? And he was like, no, 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 that's, that's actually a bad name. Like it's not that. It's much closer to what the Buffer interface in, in Go does, which is take multiple binary instances and put them together as one binary API, which we don't have in the language, by the way. But anyway, he views Dino as this is the way to run JavaScript on the platform. And I am like not going to fill in deficiencies of the language anymore. Like these are somebody else's problem. We, we will just actually be bad at that if we have to for a while until someone fixes it. Like there's no package manager right now. And like the whole package manager situation is like pretty bad. And his view, I think correctly, is that that's not a problem. <laughs> like solve that in a way that works for the web and works on the browser and then make us part of that story. We shouldn't have to go off and do our thing and then eventually reconcile it with the package manager that ends up winning for the web. Yeah. And so coming back to like the work that I do on a more daily basis, like we are protocol labs, like we make protocols and the goal is really protocol development and adoption. And my whole career, I've had these roles where it was very dualistic and that there was this internally facing piece and an externally facing piece. So I would be out in the community and doing open source work. And then that would have some kind of knock-on benefits to the company that I was at. But then I had to like completely recontextualize everything that I was doing publicly to how it benefited this company. That's great that you grew this big ecosystem, but like how many of those users did we capture into our platform? Like there was always this element of capture that was like the actual incentive structure of the company. And that was like but, really But the hard logo is so cool. Did you see the logo? It was so cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, but no one signed up. But the logo... <laughs> I remember having arguments with people and it's like, oh yeah, well, this is a bill for me taking everyone out to dinner who was like around Node Core and is like some of the most influential people in this space. And they're like, well, how many coupons did you give out? <sighs> like, it's just such a silly question. Like, it's just such an obvious benefit to what we're doing and something that we should obviously do. And not just in terms of giving back, it's not charity. Like, this is actually like 
just a positive thing for everybody involved. And the great thing about Critical Labs is that I just never have to do that. It's yeah. Just, it seems know, like that type of company where he just gets it. Well, that's part of it, but also the actual financial incentives of the company are very are different. Just protocol development and yeah. adoption. We don't have to capture a user to benefit from the protocol adoption. If you are generating more data in IPFS, that is more data that can be in Filecoin. And then we have a bunch of tokens in Filecoin. You are, by proxy, increasing the value of the network. And then we share in the value of the network. Yep. There's no separation here between the external incentives and the internal incentives. They're really well aligned that way. I would love to ask you the question of what are you most looking forward to? What's the future? But the problem mm-hmm. is that you're so eloquent and you're so good at answering <laughs> the question that it'll take 10 minutes to answer it, And we don't have that kind of time. So what I would like to ask you instead is where can people learn more about how you think and where you put stuff? Because you are really good. Do you have a Twitter handle? Do you have a blog post? Can we point to those? I mean, I have all of these things and I've written a bunch of things. I think if what you specifically want to know about is community and sustainability stuff and and this whole open source space, I really don't feel like I have a lot more to say about that now than I had a few years ago. And Nadia and I, you know, spent two seasons on a podcast talking to everybody that I would want to talk to about that. And so favorite um, podcast of all time. Yeah. Yeah. So this is request for commits. And unlike a lot of other podcasts, we never discuss anything, you know, of that time or a release of that date. Everything is as relevant now as it was when we talked about it. So it's a good one to go back through and, and do. Nadia is really good at, at doing that, actually. She also has a great one called Hope and Source with Henry, which is just also great and also just very you know, timeless. And so, yeah, I think if specifically you want to know about that, that's where I would go. In terms of decentralization, decentralized persistent data structures, a few places to look. One would be IPLD. So you can go to IPLD.io and then you'll find the docs and the GitHub org and all of that. And there's just a lot of stuff going on. It can be a little bit tough to get your head around sometimes, but... Once you immerse yourself in it a bit, it it becomes a little bit clearer. And I plan on writing more about all of that. I haven't lately, but that will probably go into... Traditionally, I'd blogged a medium. And if you want to go back and read about my community stuff, it's all in in medium. But yeah, eventually that'll kind of land on my website. But I think if you follow me on GitHub would probably be the best way to stay on top of what I actually do, being that I'm mainly focused on development. And that's where all of that's happening. So, Which is awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much. yeah. Yeah. Speaking of development, I want to make sure we have time for Spotlight. So Spotlight is where we highlight really awesome code that we think needs more love. If Michael has hundreds and thousands of suggestions, I am sure. But we're going to start with Justin. Justin, what do you got? Into the Ether podcast, they focus on all things Ethereum and DeFi. I'm new to the blockchain slash Ethereum space like within the past two months or so. And they've really just opened my eyes and ears and just learning a lot from them. So thank you, Eric and Anthony. Gunner. I'm going to do a semi-rerun, but I just want to shout out Open Tech Fund. They are continuing to struggle for their existence, and I think there are new developments pending. So I just want to make people aware of uh, saveinternetfreedom.tech and really make sure people are aware of all we're fighting for to keep all that money flowing out to the internet freedom tech community. Also applies to things that you didn't think about were freedoms. They do a lot of good work. Go check that out. Thank you, Gunner. I want to give a shout out to Apprenticeship Patterns which is Guidance for Aspiring Craftsmen. It's a book. It's one of the few books I know of that's about code that doesn't mention code at all. It's about where to learn in some way, like how to apprentice yourself to the craft. I think it looks really relevant to this conversation. And I found it particularly useful. Michael, what's your spotlight? So 
I was trying to think of a project that I felt like needed some love, like it really needed like more people on it. But, you know, most projects that are doing pretty well right now. I don't know of any like in a lot of need, just an area that I think is under trafficked and that people don't know enough about, particularly developers don't know enough about is GitHub Actions. I think that everybody's seen like a cursory glance at it and you may just think, oh, I don't need Travis anymore. I can use this. But there's something else there. You have a cloud cron job that you can just add that will just run that then you can collaborate with a community on in GitHub using like the best collaboration tools that we have for anything like this. And so there's something about how these things are integrating. And also when you think about GH pages and how you can now automate the creation of websites. So there are so many different workflows that you want a better collaboration flow around. And so you end up having to create a lot of web-based interfaces to put things that then run in your infrastructure that you then pay for and then have to be managed separately from the community interaction piece. And the amazing thing about GitHub Actions is that it is just this open-ended free service (laughs) for you to run any compute task when things happen in collaboration or just regularly. You can talk to other services. You can check things back into GitHub. I'm working on some stuff right now that literally treats it like a database. So I figured out how to store IPLD blocks in Git LFS. And so awesome. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm impressed. Yeah. And that is the backing for, I did write a database recently. I've been spending the last year on it. And it's the culmination of a lot of ideas that I've had for the last 10 years on databases. I've done a lot of database stuff. I wrote PouchDB, if you've ever used PouchDB. Yeah. So, and it's called DagDB. If you go to my GitHub, you'll see DagDB. And then you can literally just say like, oh, my name or my storage engine is GitHub Action. And it will pull out all of the right environment and just like use GitHub Actions for everything. And so I'm working on that and improving it. And then trying to think about workflows that we can do where GitHub Actions are accessing these databases and replicating them around and checking them back in. And and what does that workflow look like? It's an interesting sort of form of decentralization because you get the cloud compute part of it, but you still have the collaboration and decentralization piece. Wow. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. For those of you who are curious, we will have links in the show notes. That was a super engrossing conversation. I'd say. I feel so bad because I really love talking to you for hours on end and just 40 minutes is not enough time. Yeah. Um, I just want to keep going, but I was, I was like getting sad by the time I saw like one thirty five. I was like, <laughs> going to end soon. But thank you Don't so much. Don't just want to call me sometime. We can just have a chat. Well, yeah, yeah. We'll just do that. No yeah, recording. Michael, Michael's number is no. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Bye y'all.